You are listening to Women Leading Prevention Science, where we host candid conversations with some of the most accomplished women in the prevention science field. I am Jasmine Ramirez, a counseling psychology doctoral student and a research associate at the University of Oregon. As I move through my early years as a prevention scientist, it is an honor to speak with these inspiring female leaders in the field. This podcast was developed as part of the NIH Helping End Addiction Long-Term Initiative, or the HEAL Prevention Cooperative. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not the official views of the NIH, the NIH HEAL Initiative, NIDA, or the participating institutions and organizations. Today, I'll be talking with Drs. Jody Ford and Natasha Slesnik, and we will be discussing the different paths that led them to prevention science and the challenges they have faced along the way. Let's get started. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Jody, would you mind introducing yourself and your current work? Sure, thank you. My name's Jody Ford, as you said, and I'm a professor in the College of Nursing at Ohio State University. And I'm also the director of a stress science lab um, here in our college. My uh, research uh, focuses on um, adolescents and young adults and really looking at the um, disparities in their health, um, primarily mental health um, outcomes and substance use um, behaviors, and really trying to understand um, the broader social environment and how that impacts um, those outcomes and the stress pathways biologically, how that um, happens, kind of the pathways through which the environment um, actually impacts um, mental health and looking at um, factors such as cortisol and um, how that may have an impact. Natasha, could you do the same? Sure. Um, so I am a professor of human development and family science at The Ohio State University. And my research is focused on uh, developing and testing prevention interventions for youth living on the streets as well as families with young children. So from our last conversation, it seems that you both had a very interesting trajectory that eventually led you to prevention science. Um, could you share those stories with us today? So I started working with families with youth at risk for substance use in my graduate school career. And then when I graduated um, and was doing a postdoc, I became really interested in those families who had an adolescent who was in and out of the home because those families seemed to have more struggles with substance use, mental health. So at the time, I went to the literature to see what, what do we know about how to prevent continuing substance use and um, re reducing family conflict and, and keeping these youth in school and at home and, and not continuing to continue a trajectory towards the streets. We really didn't know very much. There was a study by Mary Jane Rother and Boris on HIV prevention at UCLA, and she's done amazing work, but there was really not very much else out there to guide people and practitioners and people working at, at shelters on, on how to work with kids who run away from home. So that's what got me interested. Um, I, I felt like this was an area that needed more attention because these kids were uh, terribly understudied and um, actually underserved. Yeah, so it sounds like for you, there was a shift from treatment to prevention focused on the trajectories that you had seen with homeless youth. Yeah, so my, my training started off in 
uh, treatment interventions for substance use, where we were testing family therapies to prevent substance use amongst adolescents. But uh, as we got further into it, I started to realize that when you're working with kids who run away from home, and then even a step further, kids who leave home and don't return home and begin to live on the streets, that the issues are, they go beyond just substance use treatment. The struggles that the youth experience extend to basic needs, uh, the um, marginalization from all the institutions that are supposed to help to, to keep our youth educated and healthy and connected. The, uh, the kids who live on the streets are dropping away from all of those supports and institutions and really become lost. So I became much more interested in how do we support these youth and provide them all of the resources they need to prevent continuing substance use. But in order to address the substance use, we also had to prevent homelessness because homelessness and substance use go hand in hand. Even if youth did not use alcohol or drugs before going to the streets, 25% of the kids start using substance use after they hit the streets because there's a drug use culture on the streets. Plus, uh, when you're worried about where you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep, when you're constantly looking over your shoulder for, um, you know, who's going to steal your stuff or, or, or attack you, you know, substance use becomes a way to cope and, and survive the streets as well. So we've become really interested in, in the connection between preventing substance use by uh, ending homelessness. And ultimately, we want to prevent youth from running away from home altogether because that's going to prevent a whole host of problems for youth, families. It's going to be more economically effective to prevent all of these problems from occurring in the first place. Uh, this is a huge task. I mean, we've been dealing with people experiencing homelessness for forever. And um, I'm not sure how successful we've been at finding uh, the right solution, but that doesn't mean that we, we stop looking. We keep working towards finding the keys, even if they're not under the, the light in the dark. Jody, I know that you had quite a different start um, and to prevention science. So could you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I started out um, as uh, a nurse and I actually worked in the neonatal intensive care unit and um, obviously very focused on critically ill newborns who were premature. Um, and uh, many of the babies actually were um, born um, drug addicted um, and um, had prematurity um, from uh, sequelae from um, substance use among the moms during pregnancy. And I started to get really interested in the causes of the mothers um, and kind of some of the social factors that led to substance use during pregnancy. And I decided to go back to school to get my master's degree. And I actually switched gears to more of a prevention side, working as a pediatric nurse practitioner in, in primary care practice, um, taking care of uh, youth from uh, infancy all the way up through early young adulthood. And uh, I did that for about 10 years. And um, much of my practice was working with adolescents um, and the older youth. 
And a lot of the work we do is, of, of course, taking care of, of clinical needs when they're sick, but much of it was also prevention and how do you um, prevent issues, including substance use and um, supporting their mental health. And there was, was not a lot of services available for uh, youth at that time. Unfortunately, we haven't made a lot of headway in that area. And, um, but I felt very ineffective as a clinician, um, focusing kind of, you know, in this small window of time when you have in the face-to-face setting with the youth on how you may um, kind of really make an impact and an effect on their trajectory in mental health as well as as using um, substances. And so I I just decided to go back to school um, one last time. um, And I have my PhD in public health. And the focus was on social epidemiology, really looking at um, the, the broader social and structural factors that contribute to health and disease and focusing a lot on uh, social disparities. And um, I have weaved together my clinical background um, in as well um, with, with the biology of looking at stress, um, primarily in an, in an effort as well to kind of enhance our understanding of how stress increases the likelihood for people engaging in, in kind of riskier um, coping behaviors that may in the moment help relieve your stress, but in the long t- term can actually also increase your stress. And one of those is, is substance use um, and um, in thinking about how these environments growing up in violence and poverty um, experiencing uh, racism, discrimination, um, et cetera, may co- you know, contribute to people's stress um, and how they may be coping, but showing above and beyond um, individual behaviors that stress really has a contribution to mental health and well-being and uh, suicidal behaviors. And um, so n- and now, um, fortunate Latasha and I have been working together now for several years and have been really working with the youth Um, who are experiencing homelessness and kind of collaborating together with both of our lines of research. Natasha and Jody described the research they are doing with homeless youth between the ages of 18 to 24 who are at risk for opioid use disorder. Natasha explained that homeless youth are probably one of the populations most at risk for opioid overdose and opioid use disorder because they don't have structural supports like stable housing and they encounter high-risk situations that lead to trauma and victimization. Jody described the biological component of their work with homeless youth using hair samples to measure levels of cortisol, a stress hormone. Together, they are examining whether an intervention that provides housing to youth prevents opioid use disorder, and if the cortisol levels are different for youth in the intervention versus youth not receiving the intervention. Of course, with this type of complex research comes many challenges. I'd say there's lots of challenges in working with youth experiencing hopeless, homelessness. I almost said hopelessness because many of these youth do experience hopelessness as well. Uh, and I, I'd say, what, okay, one, one challenge I think for many people is engaging youth who have fallen away from sis- the system and its representatives. So we're almost starting from a disadvantaged place in trying to develop a relationship and trust with these youth because so many other people have either betrayed them or mistreated them when they have sought help or people that they trusted tell them that, you know, they're never going to succeed. People that they love may have turned them out. These kids just have experienced 
lots of reasons not to trust people representing the system. So I'd say that's one barrier. And then I'd say another barrier, youth, is in general tracking youth for follow-ups. So youth who don't have a stable place to live aren't always easy to track because you have to go to the streets to find them. So for research studies that track youth every three months for a year, uh, that can be a challenge for, for research teams. I'd say engagement just even into the study, but then also retention into the intervention because also if they don't have a place to live or if they're not anywhere in particular at any point in time, trying to get them to come in for appointments is nearly impossible. You have to find a way to meet them where they're at, find a way to communicate with them. Sure, most people have phones, even about two thirds of the youth have phones, but having minutes is another matter. So plus phones get stolen and then they're constantly trying to get replacement items and then minutes cost money. So phones are are not often reliable um, ways of communicating. I think, you know, some of what Natasha says a lot is, is, is really the, the relationship building, um, you know, with these youth, um, but in my research as well with youth who are housed and their families, um, particularly when we're collecting biological specimens from them, um, people, you know, what are you going to do with the specimen and, and concerns mm-hmm. over um, and trusting that we're going to be engaging in ethical research. And a lot of research, especially community-based research, which um, I'm sure other researchers um, have alluded to, is, is about you know building relationships with the community and so that they, they trust you and that they know you're acting in good faith and that they know that you are really do cons- care and are concerned about their health and well-being and that you're engaged in this work to hopefully be able to help them. But also, I think, you know, a lot of our work is trying also to tackle some of the broader structural factors that are leading to poor health um, and inequities in health. Um, And so um, I think that that relationship building is is key in building that trusting relationship. Research with children and youth in general is one of the least funded research avenues out there. There's also an issue in like translating that research into creating change. So like we can show that this housing has an effect, but how do we get that then intervention sustained that there's buy-in socially and politically for us to be able to provide that and change that? We need to have political and social buy-in to be able to have interventions be sustained and, and create those changes. I agree with Jody 100% that Yes, we're, we're figuring out how to engage youth. We're testing prevention interventions with youth. And, you know, we, we expect to find positive outcomes. But none of this is going to matter if we can't get our communities to adopt the interventions that we're testing and showing that work. Over the course of their careers, Natasha and Jody have also had great successes and accomplishments. Natasha said her greatest accomplishment was opening drop-in centers in Albuquerque and Columbus for homeless youth to receive support and services. Jody feels like her greatest accomplishment is showing the effect that stressful environments have on behavior so people can understand and move past simply blaming individuals for their actions. For me, I think the most successful thing in my career has been the development of drop-in centers for youth experiencing homelessness. 
when I was at University of New Mexico Center on Alcoholism, Substance Abuse and Addictions, um, I I had been working with the runaway youth and I'd worked, they, they had two shelters there. I worked at one of the shelters. I'd go there every day, get to know the youth. Uh, one time a youth came in who looked different from the rest of the youth. She talked a little more edgy. She looked a little more edgy and the next day she wasn't there. So I asked the staff, well, you know, who was that? You know, that girl that was here yesterday, she's not here now. Oh, that's, that's a street youth. They, they come in to get three hots in a cot, usually when something terrible happens on the street. Well, where do they go? Oh, there's this hole in the wall drop-in center down by the university. So I go there and it was a hole in the wall. It was smoky, dark, babies were crying. It was, it was terrible. But it's where the youth went, where they felt safe and could connect to get basic needs met and connect with other people. Well, that drop-in center, um, that drop-in center um, got blown up. And so there was no place in Albuquerque for youth to connect with each other and services. So I opened a drop-in center in New Mexico. Uh, and that was a very new experience because there's no way to recruit youth on the streets into ongoing interventions unless you have a place for them to return to, to address basic needs and build relationships. When I came to the Ohio State University, there were no drop-in centers in Columbus, Ohio. So I wasn't sure how I was going to do my research. Uh, and so ultimately I ended up starting another drop-in center in Columbus so that we could do our research. And that drop-in center just recently became, at, well, in 2017, an independent nonprofit that's supported by the government, by private, um, and um, by grants. So I'd say running the nonprofits has been an outgrowth of my research that is the most meaningful because it's practical too. It's, I can see change. The youth, we, it's serving a thousand youth a year, unduplicated youth in Columbus. Jody, would you like to share some of what you consider your greatest successes or accomplishment in this line of prevention work? I think, you know, I, I would have to say, for me, I feel like it is um, kind of integrating, thinking about how stress impacts behavior. So it helps people move beyond blaming individuals for their behavior. It helps them see that the environments that people live in affects people's behavior through stress that it can cause, stress that they may acknowledge, but some people have lived a life that's been very stressful. And so they may not even report to have a lot of stress because to them, that's their life. Um, but we see the impact of that on their, on their biology, on their, their way they physically um, respond to stress um, and not, not just cortisol, but we see it impact people's um, response through, you know, inflammation, um, through aspects of their response. It doesn't change your, your DNA, but it can change the expression and how you're responding to the stress. And that can have an impact on generations um, in the future as well. So to me, just that facet of thinking about um, how these social environments may impact behavior through the stress response, and, and particularly kind of biologically and how we might capture that, has been the most rewarding for me. Given the challenging research that Natasha and Jody work on, 
and the accomplishments that they have experienced. They share the advice that they would give to a woman interested in pursuing a career in prevention research. Both Natasha and Jody said it is important to focus on things you are passionate about, and Jody wanted women to know it is never too late to change their careers. I say to focus on an area that you feel passionate about. So for me, working with these youth provides me more than just an employment opportunity. Working with the youth is really a life passion that I would do even if I weren't paid to do it. So when I met my first youth experiencing homelessness, I was so upset that our society could let these youth flounder and suffer and die and that we weren't dropping everything to do whatever we could to, to get these youth out of the streets and into homes and, and get them connected to the things that, that I was connected to. I just couldn't understand how we could let this happen. And then I put all of that energy and effort into writing grants to figure out how to solve these problems to prevent these youth from ending up dead, basically, because so many of these youth do end up prematurely dead, which is, for me, the worst outcome that you could imagine. And these kids were 5,000 youth experiencing homelessness are buried every year in unmarked and unclaimed graves. And that number hasn't changed in, in over 25 years. They just keep dying and no one even knows who they are when they're dying. It's awful. Uh, and those are the ones we know about. I would say to a young new prevention scientist in the making, focus on something that matters to you. Don't, don't do the work because you feel like you have to, or it's someone else's idea and you're just, you know, going along with it. If you want to make a difference in the world, it's going to have to matter to you. And if it matters to you, you will make it happen. I would echo um, Natasha and like finding and following your passion. And I think as well, you know, I came into this older, I had another career, a different profession, and it, it was a huge pivot for me um, when I left nursing because I haven't done clinical practice now in 20 years. And, um, but it was kind of my passion to move forward with the change and to kind of take that plunge. I was very fortunate, of course, to be able to have the means to do that and the support to be able to make that um, transition. But I think to tell the younger person that even if you maybe start in a career that you don't necessarily feel is the best fit for you, um, to, to recognize that and try to find your passion. And hopefully you would have the resources to, and kind of the persistence to be able to uh, move forward with something that um, you find uh, more meaningful uh, for you. And to also not think that um, you're too old um, to go back to school um, and that you can continue to learn and as well make a difference um, in a career that you may enjoy or find more rewarding um, to be able to kind of feel um, that you're never too old um, to really to, to, go, to go back and, and change um, your trajectory. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for Women Leading Prevention Science. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll continue to join us as we host candid conversations with some of the most accomplished women in the prevention science field. We hope you'll share this podcast with your prevention science colleagues and with any young woman you know that may be interested in pursuing a career in science. The HEAL Prevention Cooperative is funded through the NIH HEAL Initiative, an aggressive effort to speed scientific solutions to curb the national opioid public health crisis. The HEAL Prevention Cooperative includes 10 research projects throughout the country and one coordinating center based at RTI International in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. For more information on the NIH HEAL Initiative, please visit heal.nih.gov.